as we prepare to observe what I call Incarnation Day and what we call commonly Christmas Day, I want to submit to you today that the great need for the church today is righteousness, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that begins to be revealed to us within the Christmas story itself. So I want to read to you today from Matthew 1, 18 through 25, and I want to speak with you particularly about the righteousness of Joseph and how that was displayed in how he treated Mary. So let's look right at the text, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. End quote. The big idea into this exhortation today is that God's standard of righteousness is measured by faithfulness to the revealed will of God and charity toward others, especially those closest to you. And if that's true under the Old Covenant with Joseph, how much more is that true under the fulfillment of of the law under the new covenant. We live in a day when it's popular to have spirituality that's actually divorced from righteousness of character. As a pastoral counselor, I subscribe to a few news services, Christian news services, and I'm always disheartened during the week to receive a report after report, after report, almost daily, of scandals, exploitation, sexual misconduct, financial misconduct, abuse, even violence, not just within society, not amongst unbelievers, but within the churches. In the charismatic world especially, it is popular to have a spirituality that's divorced from the righteousness of character. 
I personally spent my formative years in a Pentecostal denomination in which this was very true. Character was not a matter of, of concern. It was experience. Experience over character. As long as you had the anointing, it didn't matter what your character was. Oh, we wanted to try to avoid the grosser sins, but even those grosser moral sins were dismissed if somebody was charismatic enough and powerful enough in the pulpit. So we had a spirituality that was really quite Gnostic. A proto-Gnostic spirituality is pretty common now today, not just in charismatic circles, but in evangelical circles as well. We've become a people of the letter and not people of the spirit. Bible-believing Christians are very quick to give you chapter and verse, but to display very little of righteousness, genuine righteousness. Now, this is to be expected. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, that, that there will come perilous times, terrible times, difficult times, depending on your translation. Paul tells us that the church of the last days will be devoid of righteousness, genuine righteousness. So this is very important to you and I today because we live in those days. Let's, let me re read you that text. He says, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, trash, rash, excuse me, and trash as well, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power have nothing to do with such people, end quote. Have you just heard what the apostle said? He said the church of the last days will be devoid of righteous character, although it will maintain a form of godliness. It will look good. It will sound good. But its character will be vile. It will be a powerless church. It will be a church in name only. They will name the name of Christ. They will profess the name of Christ. But it will be absence of righteousness and true power. And Paul tells us to avoid such people. That's pretty sobering. Well, back to our text with Joseph and Mary and the angel. Let me read it from the um, NIV. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. I'll only read the first few verses. 
His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. True righteousness under the Old Covenant is defined as being in accord with the law, but always by faith. The law could not bring about righteousness because it was weak through the flesh, Romans 8, 1 through 4. What the law could not do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering and thus condemned sin in the flesh. But there was a righteousness, and there have always been a righteousness among God's people. And that righteousness has always been defined by two things. A obedience and a faithfulness to the revealed will of God in Scripture and a charity towards others. So, even under the Old Covenant, God's standard for righteousness was made real, made visible, made known. And this is what Joseph is displaying to us today. The righteousness under the Old Covenant. The text tells us that he was faithful to the law he was a good, observant Jew, and thus he was righteous as far as the law would take him. But his righteousness extended beyond the letter because a proper view of the law by Joseph had produced humility and charity in his character because he knew himself that he, would, he needed mercy. So let's look at this righteousness under the Old Covenant for just a moment. We'll do that first by turning to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And we'll look at the story of Lot. Righteous Lot. He says, speaking of the false prophets, he says in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in the chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, Noah preached righteousness. What was the great need just before the flood? Was it for everybody to build a boat? Well, that that might be practical. But nobody believed that the flood was coming. Just like nobody believes that judgment's coming now. Noah understood that the great need was for righteousness. Genuine righteousness. Not legal righteousness. Not religiosity. 
But the great need in Noah's time, just as it is today, didn't Jesus say that? As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the last days, just prior to the return of the Son of Man. So it is today. The great need is for righteousness. Every preacher, every new covenant minister ought to be a preacher of righteousness. And so the flood came on the ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. God spared Noah. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawlessness. And then Peter goes on and parenthetically to add, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. So righteousness has always been the great need. From the days of the fall, and there's always been a display of righteousness by those whom God has chosen. Cain killed Abel for one reason, because Abel's deeds were righteous and Cain's were evil, of the wicked one. There's always been a, a manifestation of God's standard of righteousness on the earth. And as bad as humanity had gotten before the flood, there was still Noah and his family and Noah was a preacher of righteousness. As bad as Sodom and Gomorrah had gotten, there was still one man who was righteous in his soul. See, God will always have a people, and they will always be a righteous people. The question is today, is are you righteous, or are you merely Religious. Relig religiosity is as popular today as it's ever been. Spirituality is as popular today as it's ever been. What's not popular is righteousness. There's a lot of religion in the world today that turns it, allows you to turn in on yourself, make you the center of attention, a self-centered form of spirituality, as I said earlier, that's divorced from righteous character. But looks good, sounds good, even makes you feel good about yourself, promises you success, fulfillment, everything the flesh desires anyway. No wonder, no wonder some of these preachers make millions of dollars Per year, I'm talking major money. 
Some of these false teachers are worth 50, 100, 200 million dollars. Some of them bring in 20 million dollars a year. It's because they're giving the people exactly what the devil promised. All the good stuff and you can do it on your own terms. No righteousness required. But what shall a person give in return for their soul? What does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? You know, the, the need today, as it has always been in humanity, is the need for righteousness. And in our text, Joseph is modeling what it means to be righteous. But let's look a little closer at what righteousness under the Old Covenant looked like. Hebrews 10, 36. Here the author is quoting from the prophets. He says, and he tells them, he tells his readers, you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. For, quote, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, quote, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back, end quote. But we do not belong to those who shrink back, says the author to the Hebrews, and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved. End quote. This is serious business, folks. It, it, it truly is. As a pastoral counselor, I see it on an ongoing basis. There really are only two paths. A path of righteousness and a path of destruction. And people are always stunned, shocked, bewildered, confused, victimized in their own minds. When deviant behavior becomes destructive, it's as though they can't quite understand it. How could God do this? How come I can't act out in deviant moral behavior? I can't act out in drunkenness. I can't act out in violence towards my wife and my children. I can't exploit the poor. Why is it that I can't extort people? Or steal from my employer and get away with it. I mean, after all, they have more than I do. They're actually shocked when they suffer consequences for their behavior. They're victimized in their minds. But there are only two paths. And there are so many professing Christians today who are walking on this path of destruction and they're suffering consequences, and they are victims in their minds. Throughout church history, there have been times, some greater, some lesser, when the great need was for righteousness. And this Christmas, the great need among the people of God, the professed people of God today, is for righteousness. So righteousness, even under the Old Covenant, 
came by faith, but my righteous one will live by faith. Now that's a quote from the prophet Habakkuk. But my righteous one will live by faith. And it's fulfilled and spoken of also in Romans 1, 17, where Paul speaks of the gospel as the provision for righteousness. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the what? Righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now notice that Paul doesn't say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, because it is the information of God. It is the doctrine of God. He says it is the power of God. Only the power of the gospel can bring true fulfillment of God's standard for righteousness. But nonetheless, God's people have always been a righteous people. Now that's not true, is it, for God's people in general? The story of Israel is of abject failure to keep the law story of idolatry, rebellion, judgment, repentance, short season of reform, followed by more idolatry and rebellion and judgment, and finally exile. But God has always had a people, even in the midst of that cycle, that repeated cycle, he's always had a remnant and that remnant, folks, has always been a righteous remnant. By the way, that quote is also repeated by Paul in Galatians 3.11. For all who rely on the works of the law are under curse, as it is written, curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, the one who relies on the law is justified to be, uh, excuse me, clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because, quote, the righteous will live by faith. So the righteousness under the old covenant was in accord with the law. But even, even under the old covenant, it was a righteousness that came by faith. God's people, the remnant, have always been a righteous people and they've always been a people who are righteous by faith and that faith certainly is in a line with the law it's in accord with the law but it's the righteousness that nonetheless comes by faith so joseph's righteousness was not merely a legal righteousness the niv tries to help us out there by pointing out let me turn back there by pointing out that because Joseph, her husband, was a, was faithful to the law. So the NIV is trying to help us out there because the classic translation has been, but because 
Joseph was a righteous man. So they're trying to help us understand that the righteousness that Joseph had was a faithfulness to the law, and that's true. But then the text goes on to say, and yet, despite his faithfulness to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Joseph's righteousness was not merely a legal righteousness, and Mary can be grateful for that, and the whole world and everyone who's in Christ today can be grateful for that as well, because according to Deuteronomy, Joseph had every right to take Mary into the public square and demand that she be stoned. But there was something going on in Joseph so that he didn't have just a legal righteousness. As Donald Hegner points out in his commentary on Matthew, Joseph simultaneously had a faithfulness to the law and a charitable heart towards Mary. We can go so far as to say it this way instead. Joseph's faithfulness to the law produced a charitable heart towards Mary. A proper view of the law produced in Joseph humility and charity. And why was that? Because he knew his own need for mercy. Those who understand their own need for mercy, or those who certainly understand their themselves to be objects of mercy are far more ready to be merciful toward others. So Joseph bore a righteousness which is in accord with the law that came by faith but nonetheless was manifested not in his attempt to be precise or uh, legalistic with the law. Rather the law produced in him a righteousness by faith, that was manifest in his care, in his charitable kindness towards Mary. Now, the law required that something happen. He was going to, he was preparing to sign the divorce papers, but he was going to put her away quietly. And we don't know what would have happened after that, but it's likely he would have cared for her, he would have provided for her. He would have done the right thing. But as I said, he could have taken her by the wrist. He could have drug her out to the square. He could have performed legal righteousness. And while he would have been right to do that before the law, it would not have been the righteousness of God that he was displaying. We see something very similar to this, don't we, in John chapter 8. When the Pharisees, who made a, a living out of projecting their own sinfulness onto others, and then declare themselves righteous, drug a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery and threw her at the feet of Jesus and demanded of Jesus that he obey the law of Moses. Moses declared that such a one should be stoned. 
And you should notice that Jesus didn't argue, argue with them. He didn't debate them on the points of the law. The law was, the prescription was that she should be stoned. But Jesus took the spirit of the law. He took the heart of the law. Not just the letter. And so he turned to these men and he advised them the problem here with this woman and oh, by the way, with you as well, is sin. So, the one who has no sin, let him pick up the first stone and throw it. Yeah, it was a heinous thing that this woman had done. But the hearts of those who drug her and threw her at the feet of Jesus were just as heinous. And the only one who was righteous enough, who could have legitimately, without sin, picked up a stone and thrown at her, was Jesus. But he didn't. Instead, he asked her, after everybody had walked away in their own state of conviction and shame, Where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. There's no one here to condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I hope you're beginning to get a feel, a good, clear understanding of the righteousness that God requires and the righteousness that God provides by faith. It is a righteousness that is not either or. It's not a righteousness in which we either obey the revealed will of God and get harsh and hard in chapter and verse and devoid of charity. Or we go to the other extreme and get filled with charity and, and uh, uh, tolerance and acceptance and close our eyes to the moral deviance going on around us. This is what happened in Corinth. You might recall that story if you're familiar with that letter. The woman, the man, I should say, who was sleeping with his stepmother. And the Corinthians were proud. He tells them, 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. See, that's the other side. The other extreme. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, your, out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit and the and one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be 
new unleavened batch. Now listen to this. As you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the feast. Not with our old, old bread leavened with malice and wickedness. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Did you catch that? Paul's saying, get rid of what you used to be. You, you're still acting in a habitual manner as though you were pagans. And that's not who you are anymore. Be, make your conduct, bring your conduct, your daily conduct and your relationships with one another into line with who you really are in Christ. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And therefore you are a new creation by faith in him, through the power of the Spirit. That's the background of what Paul is saying. You are a new creation. You are a new people in Christ. Act like it. <laughs> Live out your daily conduct and relationships with one another based upon the great reality of who you are now in Christ and not who you once were in Adam. So much of the Christian life is rehabituating ourselves to the new reality of who we are in Christ and his righteousness. You see, this is, this is why it's very important to understand. Righteousness is not only imputed, it's also practical. It's part of our nature. It's inherent within the new covenant that the law is written on our hearts and minds, that, our, that the stony heart has been removed and the fleshly heart has been placed in, that God has placed his spirit within us so that we are now no longer in the realm of the flesh, but we are in the realm of the spirit. We are a new people, a new creation. We are a righteous people. The righteous requirement of the law has been fully met in us. That's Romans 8, 4. Read it for yourself. Romans 8, 3, and 4. Incredible. God sent his son into the world to be a sin offering so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. If you are in Christ, you are a righteous person by position and now Work it out. Display that righteousness. And that righteousness, you, you will know that you're working it out. You will know that you're doing it by two signs. First of all, you'll have a growing longing to know and do the will of God. And a growing love for others. Especially those of the household of faith. And most especially for those closest to you in your own home. So legal righteousness was a folly. We don't want just legal righteousness. This is the problem with Bible-believing evangelicals. They've got chapter and verse, and there's nothing wrong with that. They can quote you chapter and verse, but they can't display righteousness. There's a lot right with that. There's a lot wrong with that, I should say. You can't find anything right with being able to quote chapter and verse. The devil can do that. 
it's good to be able to quote chapter and verse, but it's better to be able to quote chapter and verse and then display it in your character. This was the problem with, the, the, with Israel as a whole. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 10. He says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Israel was not saved. Israel today is not saved. He says in verse 2, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. Isn't that interesting? They worship the right God but in the wrong way. For I can testify about them, Paul says, that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Israel worshiped the right God, but in the wrong way, and that's just as bad as not worshiping the right God at all. Listen, if you're not aware of the righteousness of God, you will go about establishing your own righteousness based on something. For Israel, they based it on strict letter by letter, precept upon precept, observance of the law, and it did them no good. It only produced hypocrisy. Time and time again, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus isolated and then denounced, cursed, the most righteous of the righteous people in Israel at the time, and that was the Pharisees. Time and time again, in Matthew 23, you can read it for yourself. Jesus said over and over again, Woe to you, Pharisees and teachers of the law. Hypocrites. Woe to you, teachers of the law. Hypocrites. Woe to you, Pharisees. Hypocrites. They had the law, and they deluded themselves into the fact that they could keep it, but they were hypocrites. There held no charity. They were really precise. They tithed mint and cumin and so on, but they never gave any concern to the weightier matters of the law, charity and justice. So legal righteousness is a folly. You might remember the rich young ruler, that was his problem. He wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life, and he asked Jesus that question. And Jesus asked him, have you kept the law? And he said, yes, I have, from up from my youth. He was legally righteous. He had a legal piety. But then Jesus said, well, one thing you lack, and that is to go sell all your riches, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he had great wealth. He had kept the commandments. He had kept the law in his mind to the letter. 
but he had never bothered to use his wealth to care for the poor. That's not the righteousness of God, folks. If he had truly kept the law, if he had truly understood the law, if he had truly believed in the law, that young man would have used his wealth to care for the poor. And he would have followed Jesus. For Jesus is the culmination and the fulfillment of the law. So that young man thought he knew the law. He thought he had observed it. But he had not even begun to. Just like so many today. Just like so many today who quote the law. Who would bring you back under the law. And be proud of the fact that they're doing it. There are pastors right now, by the way. I keep reading about it. I keep seeing it on Twitter and social media. There are certain Reformed pastors especially who are quite upset about the fact that Christmas falls on Sunday and people want to stay home with their families instead of go to the, quote, Lord's Day. They're quite upset because Sunday, in their mind, is still the Sabbath. And people should not be home with their families on Christmas. They should be Instead, at the Christian synagogue, which is what I would call it, observing the Sabbath. I'm not kidding you. There are pastors on Twitter and social media that are expressing their disdain and commanding that their people attend church on Sunday and keep the Sunday Sabbath. Don't spend time with your family Christmas morning. There are always those who want to observe the law to the letter, but not extend a charitable heart towards anyone. This is true for all of Christianity, folks. The world sees evangelicals especially as those who are really into being right, but don't have a lick of goodness, says Gordon Fee, and I agree with him. Well, we're running out of time. What I wanted to share with you today, I want to be clear that I summarize very briefly here. God's standard for righteousness is faithfulness to the revealed will of God in Scripture and charity toward others, most especially to those closest to you. Let me rephrase that. The righteousness that Joseph displayed towards Mary revealed a righteousness that is faithful to the revealed will of God and produces charity toward others. I can't stress that enough. If your Bible study, if your theology, if your exegesis, if your devotion to Scripture is not producing in you a spirituality that brings about a charitable righteousness in your heart then you're failing in your studies you're failing in your understanding of scripture the righteousness that was foreshadowed in the old covenant is fulfilled in the new covenant and let me leave you with this final few thoughts then if the righteousness that was displayed by Joseph was a genuine righteousness, isn't it? And it was. It was just a foreshadow of that which would be under the new covenant. 
If Joseph was a righteous man, and the righteousness that he bore was actual righteousness as displayed towards his charitable heart towards Mary, how much more for you and I who are now under the new covenant, who have the Spirit dwelling in us, and in whom Romans 8, 4 tells us that the righteous requirement of the law is now fulfilled in our hearts. And what is the righteous requirement of the law? Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 13, 8 through 10 tells us it is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does it tell us about love? Sadly, we live far below that standard, don't we? But we don't have to. We don't have to. Most people confuse natural affection with love. Most people confuse need or romantic need with love. But the love that fulfills the righteous requirement of the law is a love that's produced by the Spirit. It's the love of God manifested poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So this Christmas, let me encourage you to meditate on these things. Let me encourage you and remind you that the great need in the world today is for genuine righteousness, God's standard of righteousness that was manifest perfectly in the life and ministry and the finished work of Jesus Christ and is now being fully met, has been fully met in you who are in Christ. And that the fulfillment of the law is met in one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole point, the whole point of God is to create a people for his own glory who manifest his holiness and display his character in their relationships with one another. And Joseph's charity towards Mary is but one snapshot. But it is an important snapshot because it comes to us at the beginning of the Christmas story. And therefore it holds to us the promise of a righteousness that already existed, but that would be fulfilled in the son of Mary, whom Joseph named Jesus. Amen.